Okay, and welcome to this week's Zoom Parsha class. And we are on Parsha's Chaye Sora. And um, right, you know, right to begin with, we have a question. Uh, how can the Torah portion be called Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, when in essence, the opening verse begins with telling you that she lived 127 years, and the next words is, and Sarah passed away in Kiryat Arba, which is in Hebron. So uh, why would you call the life of Sarah if really it does not talk about the life of Sarah? It actually talks about post-life uh, of Sarah. And the, the answer that I've heard from the Rebbe of blessed memory is that the true life of a person is actually examined through the legacy that they leave. And thus the Torah portion that talks about Isaac getting married and setting up his own household is the true legacy of Sarah's life. And um, we're going to go through the Torah portion. And again, we'll sprinkle it with some insights. And because this Torah portion is primarily talking about um, Avraham finding a wife for his son Isaac, we're going to talk about the matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Okay, so let's start from the beginning. The verse says that the life of Sarah was 100 years 20 years and seven years. This was the years of the life of Sarah. And of course, immediately we have a couple of questions here. Number one, why is it in each denomination of digits, it says years. It doesn't say 127 years. It says 100 years, 20 years, and seven years. And then secondly, why does it say uh, in the beginning of the verse, and this was the life of Sarah, gives you the number, and then concludes again the years of the life of Sarah. Why the double, why the double language life of Sarah? So, um, you know, God willing, like always every week, I send out a recorded lecture based on a mystical teaching of the Rebbe. And uh, this week, it'll go out tomorrow, God willing. And over there, I talk about this on a mystical level, all the way to the depths of what the process of creation is and what the purpose of life is, and then getting practical. Um, over here, I will just share with you Rashi's interpretation. Rashi says that each digit comes to teach you of a different stage in life. And then Rashi begins to explain that she was 100 years old. When she was 100 years old, she was like 20 years old. And what that means is that even though from the physical court down here. The Jewish court down here begins to judge people at the age of adulthood. We talk about it as bar and bat mitzvah, 13 years uh, for, a, for a boy and 12 years for a girl. But that in truth is just a generalization because really the de definition of an adult according to the law is actually by the maturity of the body. Um, you know, we're talking about the pubic here, we're talking about a beard, we're talking about four women, um, the chest. And, and I just wanna point out to you that this generalization does not carry in biblical, in biblical laws. For example, um, performing a wedding to have two witnesses is biblical, not rabbinical. And therefore, you cannot, you cannot use just two bar mitzvah boys. You need to know for certain that they are physically, bodily mature. If not, the wedding isn't a kosher wedding. Uh, so too, for our certain Torah portions, we don't call up a bar mitzvah boy. Um, uh, for example, you know, my oldest son, God bless him, his bar mitzvah portion came out on the one Torah portion, which according to all opinions, its reading is biblical. And that is the Shabbat before Purim, when we read the story, which God tells us, remember what Amalek did to you. 
And actually, he could not, in that Torah portion, he could not get the Haftorah, which is normally what a Torah, what a Bar Mitzvah boy would do, because that Torah reading, that last Torah reading, the Haftorah, is biblical. And therefore, the fact that he was 13 years old is not enough. So I just want to share with you that concerning the Barabbat Mitzvah. However, we are taught that in the heavenly court, one is not judged until they turn 20 years old. And that in the heavenly court is the definition of maturity. Even though the Torah tells us to rule by 13, 12 slash body maturity, but the Torah itself tells us that in the heavenly court, you're clean until 20 years old, and then you become accountable. And of course, Kabbalah explains that 20 years old is the full maturity intellectually because the 110 represents wisdom, 110 represents understanding, and thus at the age of 20, you're considered intellectually mature and thus responsible for your actions. So therefore, Rashi is telling us that the verse breaks up the digits that we should extrapolate. At 100 years old, she was as clean as of sin as a 20-year-old. And, and so too, by 20, she was as beautiful as a 7-year-old. So that's how Rashi explains this. And then Rashi says that why does it conclude with the words, Shnei Chayesara, repeating itself, this is the life of Sarah. And Rashi just tells us to teach us that they were all good, all to, throughout our whole life. And, and again, follow tomorrow. You'll be receiving an email, God willing, of the, of the lecture that I'm preparing. And over there, you'll have beautiful, deep, and practical insights to this on a total different level. Now, Sora passed away in Kiryat Arba. By the way, Orit, who's with us in this class, comes from Kiryat Arba. She lived in Kiryat Arba, which is in Hebron, till this very day, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham comes to mourn and eulogize his wife, Sarah. Now, our sages want to know, why did we go from the story of the binding of Isaac on the altar straight into the story of the passing of Sarah? What is the correlation here? And what we're actually taught is that when Sarah found out what almost happened to Isaac, she died. Um, her soul left her body. Now, Avram, now after he's, he comes back and then he, he deals with the passing of his wife, he mourns her, he eulogizes her, and then now he's going to bury her. And by burying Sarah, Avram was not just going to go ahead and prepare a burial place just for Sarah, but rather Avraham was looking for a family plot and thus he makes sure to take what's called Ma'orasamachpela, a double cave, because there was place for three burial places and each one was double. So he would be able to have him and his wife, his son and his son's wife, his grandson and his grandson's wife. And he goes ahead and he comes to the, the people over there of Bnei Ches, Ches, Heth in English, they were the people that lived there. And he says, please, he would like to go ahead and purchase a place to bury his dead. And they tell him, you are a prince of God amongst us. And therefore, you can choose whichever grave you want. And no one will hold it back from you. And they're telling him that we're going to give it to you for free. Just take it because you're a prince of God. And God gave you this land, as far as we're concerned, it belongs to you. So you can just take whichever you want. And Avram answers them two answers. They said, choose a grave. And he says, bring me to Ephraim, the son of Tzohar, who owns the plot in which there is the double cave, number one. And number two, he answers them, um, I will not be taking it for free, but I will purchase it. And the, the simple meaning of I will purchase it means that it should be completely removed from anyone's possession, but it should be only mine and my inheritance to my kids. And Ephraim comes along 
And Ephraim uh, starts telling him in front of everyone, no, 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 don't pay. It's yours. Take it. And Abraham says to him, no. He bows in gratitude and he says, I can't take it for free. So please, if you would only listen to me and accept what I'm saying, let me give you money. And then Ephraim goes ahead and says to him, well, between you and I, what is 400 coins? And he charged him 400 coins for that plot, which was an exuberant amount. And not only that, but he actually tells him that he wants the international business currency. So that is the like, best type of coins that there was in those days. And that's why even though Ephron is spelled ayin pei resh vav nun, but if you put the O vowel on the resh, so you don't really need the vav, and it'll still read Ephron. So therefore, in the last time it mentions his name in this story, it writes it without a vav. And Rashi tells us in the name of our sages, why did the Torah write his name the last time without a vav? To teach us that he spoke a lot and he did very little. And therefore we are taught, actually do the opposite. Speak a little and do a lot. Okay, he goes ahead and he buries his wife there. Now, I want to just tell you, parenthetically speaking, that when we call it Kiryat Arba, Arba means four. There's different reasons why it was called Kiryat Arba. One simple reason is it's because of four famous, very huge people that lived there, physically huge, giants. Another opinion is because there are four couples that are destined to be buried in this burial spot. Now, I told you three couples. Who's the fourth couple? We're taught that Adam and Eve is also buried there. So you have four couples, Adam and Eve. You have Abraham and Sarah. You have Isaac and Rebekah. You have Jacob and Leah. Now, Jacob had two primary wives, Rachel and Leah. And amongst the two of them, his primary wife was actually Rachel. She's the one he originally wanted, and he was tricked by his father-in-law into marrying also Leah. Now, if so, why was Leah buried there and not Rachel? Because we will learn later in the Torah that he, Rachel passed away in childbirth of Benjamin, and that was on the road on the way back to his father's house, back to Israel. And she, he buried Rachel at the roadside. And when he asked Joseph, which is Rachel's son, to make sure that he does not get buried in Egypt, but, get bur but gets buried in, in um, Israel, he tells Joseph finally what happened with Rachel. And he tells Joseph, I know that in your heart you question me. How am I putting on you such a burden to have to stand up to Pharaoh and the man to be able to take my body out of Egypt when I didn't even give your mother the respect of carrying her back home or even bringing her into a city. And I just buried her on the roadside. Until this very day, you'll see that the cave of Rachel is on the roadside. And he goes ahead and he answers Yosef, and that's how we now know the story, that by divine inspiration, he saw that when the Jews will be led out of Israel by Babylon, by, by the king, by the Babylonians, they would be taken down this road. And thus, when they see the burial place of Rachel, they will cry out to her and pray that she should defend them in heaven. And therefore, we have the famous verse, Rachel mevaka albaneha, Rachel cries before the throne on her, for her offspring until God promises her, Shuvuvanim, I will bring back your children. Yes, they're going into exile, but it's not permanent. So that's why it's Leah that's buried in the, in the uh, Ma'ar Samachpela together with Yaakov and not Rachel. Okay, right after he buries the, his wife, he now deals to the next 
business order of business, and that is to marry off his child. And he says to himself, look what almost happened. I thought God commanded me to actually sacrifice him. God didn't. God only commanded me to sanctify him as an offering, which is not done through slaughtering, but done through binding upon the altar. But this makes me think he's already 37 years old. And what would be if something does happen to him and there's no offspring? That would be the end of the lineage. And thus it is my responsibility to get him married so that there will be a continuity to this lineage. And then he calls over his most faithful servant slash student. And his name is Eliezer. And he tells him, I want you to make an oath. And the oath I want you to take is that you will go ahead and bring and find my son a wife. And I'll get into the details of the oath for a minute. I want to first talk about something that seems to be so inappropriate. The verse says that Abraham told this, his servant, place your hand by my groin and swear. Why? Why would Abraham do that? That is inappropriate. That is immodest. Why? Now, to understand this, let's get very current. So as you know, Presidents of the United States and any official taking office, he takes his oath on a Bible. Where does that come from? Where does it come from that when you take an oath, you place your hand on a Bible? And the answer is it comes from its origin is in Jewish law. Because in Jewish law, when you take an oath, you have to be holding a, a holy object either a Sefer Torah or a pair of tefillin. Now, why? Why do we have to do that? Why can't we just make an oath? So there's two reasons you're going to make an oath in the Torah. One oath, I mean, I'm just saying to two categories. One category is what Abraham is doing here. When he's making his servant, Eliezer, take an oath, he's not telling him, swear to me, you're saying the truth. There is no truth to be told here. But rather, he's telling him, I want you to swear to me on an absolute commitment. And I'm going to focus on the word absolute here. An absolute commitment that no matter what, you will do this. Another type of oath is that you're saying the truth. And here, too, the point of the oath is, I want you to swear on the absolute truth of what you are saying. Now, let's talk about this concept of why we do it on a mitzvah object, on a holy object. Because as you know, Einstein has proven to us that we live in a world of relativity. And in relativity, there is no absolute. And therefore, even the heart of the human being, his emotions, his intellectual capacities, his or her paradigms are all relative and they change from day to day as we evolve. And thus, from a religious perspective, Einstein talks about light. For us, light is Torah, mitzvahs, and divinity. The absolute that exists in our life is only God. Everything else is relative. And therefore, when we take an oath which means that us creatures of relativity are connecting with absolute. And that's the whole point of an oath, an absolute commitment, an absolute truth. Thus, we have to hold on to an object of the absolute. And thus, we hold on to the Sefer Torah or the Tefillin, a Torah object. Now, with Abraham, even though he of his own divine inspiration kept what would later become the 613 commandments for his offspring. However, the only one absolute, which is not come from his human intuition and inspiration, the only one absolute mitzvah that God told him to physically do was his circumcision. 
and therefore he had no choice but to tell Elazar to hold on to the absolute that exists in his world. So, and obviously it was done in a, obviously it was done in a, a holy and, and a proper fashion, but just a notion, if you think about what's going on here, it should be like, whoa, well, why? Well, now we know why. Okay, now, what does he tell him to swear? He says like this, he swears to him of two things. Number one, bring me someone from the extended family. Number two, make sure that Isaac will not have to move out of Israel to them, but they come here. And the reason why Abraham did that is because when you follow through the life of our patriarchs and matriarchs, you will see that Abraham left Israel and Jacob left Israel. Abraham left Israel when there was the famine, he went to Egypt. And when there was a famine in the times of Isaac, Isaac was going to follow in the footsteps of his father. And all of a sudden you read in the verse that God appeared to him and said, you can't leave Israel. And the simple answer for that is because Isaac was sanctified as an offering upon the altar. And there are laws that the holy flesh body of a sacrifice cannot leave certain parameters. And thus Isaac wasn't able to leave Israel. And therefore God tells, uh, Abraham tells Eliezer that you can not agree to any, any shidduch that would lead to Isaac leaving Israel because he can't leave Israel. And Eliezer says, and what if I go to your extended family and they're not willing to come back? They're willing to do the, the, to do the match but on uh, the marriage, but only if Isaac comes to them. Then Abraham says, then you are, you are free from your oath. Do not agree to that match and come back. So that's what happens. And the, the servant Eliezer takes an oath. And then the servant goes ahead and he laddens up 10 camels full of wealth and he heads out to the first place of Abraham's extended family. Now, let's just go back to Abraham's family. Abraham's family was him and two brothers. One brother died, and that brother had two daughters and a son. The son was, was, um, was Lot, well, sorry. The son was Lot, who pretty much grew up by Abraham. We read a lot about him in last week's Torah portion. And the two daughters were each married their uncles. So Sarah marries Abraham, and the other the daughter, Milka, marries the other brother, Nahor. Now, what happens is there's going to be two places where Eliezer can look for Abram's extended family. He can go to Lot, and deal with Lot's two daughters, or he can go to Nachar, and Nachar's offspring gave birth to Besuel. Besuel gave birth to a son, Lavan, who will later play a big role because Rebecca, Jacob's mother, sent Jacob to Lavan to marry because Lavan was the father of Rachel and Leah. But for right now, what we need to know is that there was love on the, the son of Bituel, which is Abraham's great nephew. And there is the daughter, Rivka, who is Abraham's great niece, the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, Nachar. So he heads in that direction. And now over here, where he gets to the well, and he doesn't know, you know, who's it going to be. And he prays to God. Now, I'm going to talk about this story when we, when we close up the class. Um, what, what do you mean he doesn't know where to go? I mean, he knows that he has to go to family. He knows why he came to the land of Nachar. He knows who the family is. What, what does that mean that he's telling God, give me a sign? But anyway, we'll talk about that. But for right now, he comes there and he prays to God. And he says, God, give me a sign 
of which girl is befitting of my master's son. Now, knowing that Abraham was the embodiment and the representation of kindness, he asked God to accept this sign that he's going to ask a girl if he can have from her her jug to drink, if she would help him and give him water to drink. And if she says, not only will I give you, but let me go quickly bring your camels, I can see that you've traveled. So then I will know that this is a girl that embodies what my master's life is and therefore is worthy of her son. And the verse says, as he finishes talking, immediately Rivka appears. Now, I just want you to know that according to the simple story, which it's hard to understand biologically, but according to the simple story, Rebecca was born, Rivka was born at the time of um, Isaac's, Isaac's uh, being bound on the altar. When Isaac was bound on the altar, he was 37. Isaac gets married at the age of 40. According to this, Rebecca was three years old at the time, which makes this whole story kind of hard to understand. I heard, I did not see it inside, but I heard someone told me that the Ramban, I think, either Nachmanides or Maimanides, I think it was Nachmanides, has an opinion that she was 14 years old. And obviously that would make more sense to us, but the simple story that we're always taught is that she was three years old, and when the question is asked, why, why would you do that? Why, why would you take a three-year-old and betroth a, a three-year-old? That's not the Jewish way. And uh, the answer given is because she was a rose amongst thorns, and she needed to be picked and brought to safety ASAP. And at the age of three, she was able to be separated from her family. By the way, you will know that the story goes on that at the age of 60, 20 years after they're married is when they first pray to have children. Now, why would you pray only 20 years later? We know that the law is that 10 years of marriage without children is, is already a time to start, according to Allah, start taking steps. Uh, why did they wait 20 years? So, you know, what I would suggest is that obviously he didn't actually physically consummate a marriage with a three-year-old. And thus, I would suggest that they will be throughout for 10 years. They were married when she was 13, which in those days obviously was normal. And then 10 years after that, in seeing that they weren't having children, they, they would go on to take steps of prayer, so forth and so on. Okay, let's get back to the story. So she comes, he asks her, um, are, uh, can, can I have a drink? And she answers, I will, I will give you water and I will fill up the, the, I forgot the name of it, that half brown thing um, where horses and, and then you, you drink, you put water in there. And she says, I'll do that. And immediately he's like, wow, unbelievable. God has in the honor and the merit of my master given me success. And before he even asks her the key question, who are you? Who are your parents? Whose family are you from? He is so certain in the zikhut, the merit of his master Abraham, that he already gives her expensive gifts. And then he asks her, who are you? And can I stay by you overnight? And she says, I am the daughter of Betuel, and uh, who is the son of Milka, which is the wife of Nachar. Yes, she is the family of Abraham. And then she says, yes, I will prepare for you the, the straw uh, for, for you to have a place and for your camels to have places to sleep. And immediately Eliezer bows to God in gratitude that in the merit of his master, God has opened the path for him. And he actually blesses God and says, blessed are you God, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his kindness and truth of, uh, with, with, in his relationship with my master and has brought me to this place of the brother, the house of the brother of my master. 
Okay, now Betuel and Rivka runs home to her mother, tells her mother Milka what happened, and Lavan, her brother, sees that there is wealth involved. And as we will keep on seeing throughout the life story of Lavan as a brother, as a father-in-law, he is consistently always focused on money. And therefore he runs out to this man who came and gave such amazing gifts to his sister. And he goes ahead and he brings him to the house and, uh, and Eliezer, they want to feed him. And Eliezer says, I am on a mission and I cannot eat before I do what I was ordered to do. And he starts off the conversation with a most incredible statement. And by the way, parenthetically speaking, throughout this entire story, we don't use in the Torah his name. We refer to him as the servant. And Abram called his servant. And he told the servant to swear. Now, the Torah already told us what his name is. But here is a real interesting verse. He starts off his conversation with the father of Rivka. And he said, I am the servant of Abraham. Now, I, I want to stop here for a moment. But I think this is so important. You know, I, I don't know if you guys know or follow my Instagram. But I, I make a, a mim, five mims per week, focused on the, on the Torah portion. And it gets posted by someone who runs it for me on, on uh, Instagram, on my Instagram channel. Now, what I wrote for this one line to capture the concept is that when you're representing someone else, completely remove your ego out of the way. Let's talk about this. And, and, you know, when I went on the March of the Living, I learned a lot of things that my grandfather didn't tell me about the Holocaust. Because now I was dealing with a, a intellectual, educated person who did a study to the logic behind what was going on, if you can use that sickened word, logic, what was going on. So he explained to us the concept of giving the Jews numbers was all for the same reason of shaving off their hair. It wasn't just about hygienics, which they really didn't care and didn't exist in the camps, but rather it was all a process to rob humanity and a human identity. When you take away someone's name and you turn him into a number, he becomes an object. And that's also what happens in prisons when they refer to you as numbers. There's a, an intellectual warfare that's going on here in breaking down the human identity of the person. And when I understand this and I apply it to what happened here, Eliezer robs himself of any identity. And he says, pay zero heed to the messenger. Hear only the message and the sender who sent the message. Now in Hasidus and amongst Hasidim, there is huge fabrengans about this one verse. Teaching us that when Moses died, and God makes a eulogy for Moses. He doesn't talk about any of Moses' greatness. The verse says, Vayomos Moshe Eved Hashem, a two-word eulogy, the servant of God. And the Talmud tells us an insight, Eved Melech Melech, the servant of a king is a king. Because when the servant of the king comes to someone and tells him something, then it's not him saying it. He's bringing the word of the king, and thus his word is not treated as the word of general or servant so-and-so, but rather as the word of the king. And thus we are taught that in our relationship with God, our real goal 
is to bring absolute transparency to the I and the ego, which in a sense is very, I'm going to use the words, un-American in the way that the great Mashpia, the great mentor of Mendel Futafas, when he came out of Russia and he arrived in America, he said, this is the only country in the world where its grammar dictates that you capitalize the letter I when you talk about yourself and not so with a Y when you talk about someone else, you, he, him. And this notion of the capitalization of the pronoun I, he spoke about it in the sense of this verse, in the sense of the eulogy of Moses. Now, I want to just be clear. The Rebbe explains, he explained to us when he was once talking, actually this Shabbat is the Shabbat of the International Convention. And normally there would be 3,000 rabbis, uh, you know, coming to Crown Heights, but because of um, the, the pandemic, uh, what we're actually having is we're doing it virtual. But when the Rebbe spoke about the word shliach, and if you add up the word shliach, you have 348. If you add up the word mashiach, you have 358. And I was there when the Rebbe was talking about this. He says, what is the concept? The concept is that each and every one of us is a shliach, a messenger, an emissary of God. And we were each gifted with 10 faculties, three intellects, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and seven emotions. Now, in order to be the true shaliach of God, to be able to bring the final revelation of divinity, peace, and goodness through the coming of Mashiach, Messiah, we have to be able to do both. On one hand, we're a shliach. The definition of a shliach means, like over here, the servant of Abraham am I. We don't let our ego get in the way. We need to become as transparent as humanly possible to the word of God, to the mission of God, to the love of God, to the kindness of God, to the compassion of God, to the justice of God. Get ourselves out of the way. But yet on the other hand, because God has gifted us with the faculties of intellect and emotions, the way we become transparent to God is not by suppressing our intellect and suppressing our emotions. Rather, it's by refining and aligning our intellects and emotions with the will and wisdom of God through the study of Torah and the service of prayer. So when he says here, I am the servant of Abraham, he wasn't saying, I am a nobody, a shmata, a doorstep. No, he was saying that I have aligned my entire infrastructure and psyche to be a conduit and transparent to the mission and to the teachings and personality of my master. And in this case, it was Abraham. Now, going further with this, he tells the whole story. He repeats the whole story of what happened. And our sages say, whoa, whoa, whoa. We learn out such important laws of mitzvahs. The Talmud gives an example about how do we know that the blood of a rodent is impure, not just the flesh of a rodent. And we learn it out from two extra letters in the, in the verse. There's an extra vav and there's an extra hay. And from there we learn out that the blood of a rodent, not just the flesh of a rodent, is impure. Now, over here we're talking about laws that is, that is applicable in life and death. Because if someone becomes impure and walks into the holy temple purposely, and, and this we learn out of, an extra letter we have to figure out and extrapolate and use the 13 principles of extrapolation that God gave us when we to know what he means when he says what he says in the Torah. But here, a story, we're going to have to read it all over again 
The birds couldn't just say, and Eliezer, or whatever, the servant of Abraham, told Bisuel all that has transpired. Period. End the story. No. He goes over the whole story. And I arrived. And I told to God, please be with me and allow this sign to be. And so forth and so on. And from here, our sages say, great is the sichot, the simple talk of the servants of the matriarchs, far greater than even the laws of extrapolation of the offspring. Now, simply speaking, it doesn't explain to us what this means. However, I will share with you an insight that the Rebbe said that he explains in Chassidus based on the teachings of his uh, predecessors. He says that where does the Torah take its time and totally explain and repetitious is not by any conversation. It's by the conversation of a shidduch, the conversation of a marriage through which the continuity of the Jewish people will go on. And yes, even unnecessary repetition of a story when we're talking about the marriage and continuity of the Jewish people is so precious that God will spend so many extra words and verses. And then, of course, according to Hasidus, the Rebbe takes it even to a higher dimension because in, the, in, in Kabbalah, whenever we talk about a marriage between a groom and a bride, a husband and a wife, we talk about God and the Jewish people where at Mount Sinai, God adorned Mount Sinai with flowers and held it over the Jewish people as a canopy when he betrothed us to become his bride. And then later on Yom Kippur, when Moses brought down the second tablets to permanently have it for the Jewish people, it's called Yom Chatunato. So one is the betrothal, one is the chuppah process, and one is the marriage consummation process. Thus, on a deeper level, we're talking about that the physical marriage between a Jewish man and a Jewish woman is actually a reflection of the universal, the supernal marriage between God and us through the Torah and mitzvot. So therefore, it goes through all these details. I do want to point out to you that Eliezer knew that he has to be careful in how he tells the story. So Eliezer kind of reverses one aspect of the chronological order of the story. You remember I told you that Eliezer was so sure at that point that God has in the merit of Abraham guided him that he gave the jewelry before he asked her who she was. If you look in the verses when he tells the story to Besuel, he tells it that he first asked her and then he gave the jewelry in order that they shouldn't question him, what kind of servant are you? How did you have the right to give away your master's possessions before you knew for sure? And another great conversation of insight goes on here that Eliezer did it because he was certain with faith, but he did not expect for Besuel to be able to embrace the certainty of trust and faith to realize that Abraham, that Eliezer never endangered the possessions of his master. Okay, let's move along. They now say, whoa, 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 okay, we agreed to the Shidduch, but uh, come on, give her some time. You know, uh, don't just take her from us. And he says, listen, I cannot wait. If you're not willing to send her immediately, then let me know, and I will go to the other extended family, i.e., um, Lot and his daughters to go ahead and find a Shidduch. And they said, well, let's ask the girl. And from here, we have a very interesting law. It is inappropriate, even in the most observant, ultra-Orthodox, uh, you know, it is inappropriate to marry off a boy and a girl without the girl's consent. Now, yes, there are laws about a father being able to but the Torah tells us from here we learn out that it is best to always have the girl's consent. And the Talmud talks about 
this consent because if they don't consent, it's going to lead to separation, divorce, animosity, and that's inappropriate. Don't force that upon someone. Okay, so Yitzchak, I'm sorry. Um, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, Eliezer takes Rivka, who said, yes, I'm going with him, and he brings her back to Avraham. And as he's getting close, it says that what does he see? He sees, she sees, I'm sorry, that there's a man praying in the field. The verse says, It says that Isaac went out to the field to pray in the afternoon time. Now, from here we learn out. The verse says, and Abram woke up in the, Abram woke up in the early in the morning. So Abram instituted the prayer, the morning prayer. Over here we see that Isaac went out to pray in the afternoon. He instituted the afternoon prayer. And then later by Jacob, we'll see when he prays at night before he goes to sleep, and that's the night, the evening prayer. Um, and of course, this is all teachings that we know after the fact. Um, uh, you know, that we had instituted the prayers because of what happened in the temple. And then we realized that our forefathers already opened up, so to speak, the channels and the gateways to these prayers. Rivka sees someone there, and obviously he looks very saintly. And she asks Eliezer, who is that? And he tells her, that is my master's son. And immediately she lets herself, you know, for a slide off the camel onto the ground and covers her face. Uh, very interesting, right? We cover the face of the bride and it's connected to this verse. And then right before the marriage, right before the chuppah, we uncover the bride's face, right? He has to see her first, then he covers the bride. That's because of what happened with Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. But the actual covering of the face during the chuppah comes from this fact that Rivka covered her face. Okay, then after that, it says that, Ab, that Yitzchak um, married, um, Sarah, uh, married um, Rivka, brought her into the tent of, uh, of Sarah, and finally, he was consoled over the death of his mother. And here we learn out that a, a man finds consolence from the passing of his mother in his wife. And our sages actually tell us that there was a complete condolence and consolence because what happens is that Sarah was blessed with three special blessings. One, there was always a cloud right over her tent. And as you'll learn later, when we talk about the tabernacles, that a cloud represents the presence of God. Number two, her Shabbos candles lasted from Shabbos till the next Friday. And three, there was a special blessing in her challah in her bread that she made and isaac saw that all these blessings actually manifested itself by rivka too and he realized that this is my wife who follows in the footsteps and the path and the righteousness of my mother on a total different note you know that in chabad where the rebbe instituted that because we live in such a state of darkness and shabbos candles is one of the mitzvahs where we physically see the light of the mitzvah, and therefore we should do it more and more. So the Rebbe learned out from this teaching that Rebecca was three years old, and here we see that she lit the candles in the tent of Sarah, and therefore single girls from the age of three should start lighting Shabbos candles. Now, I just want to share, there is a difference between the Shabbos candles that a three-year-old single girl lights and a married woman lights. A married woman lights two candles on Shabbat, a minimum of, not on Shabbat, God forbid, on Friday in the honor of Shabbat. Now, <clears throat> the two candles simply is because of the dual terminology in the Ten Commandments concerning heating Shabbat. There's this word, Zachor et HaShabbat, and then there's the word, Shmor et HaShabbat, remember and heed. And therefore, Shabbos, we double up things. According to one interpretation, that's why we have two chalas. 
And that's why we have everything about Shabbos called Iska de Shabbat Everything about Shabbat is double. So the candle lighting of a married woman is two candles. Now, the, ma the candle lighting of a single woman, a single girl, until she's married, is one candle. So there is a difference, but nevertheless, we are asked by the Rebbe to have our single daughters light candles. And as you know, candles, the Talmud tells us, is in order to bring peace and light into the family. And therefore, you know, a girl lighting a candle, even if it wasn't the customs of your grandparents or great-grandparents, it'll only bring an extra, an extra measure of light and peace and, 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 and you know, peace in the family and, and uh, domestic blessing. And, and God knows and everyone knows how desperately we need that in today's day and age. Okay, with this being said, let's go on to the next part of the story. And that is that Isaac, our sages tell us that Isaac, once he was married and he saw that Avram would now be alone, he goes and he finds a woman by the name of Keturah. And he brings Keturah to his father that he should marry her. And they have children, another six children. Now, what is very interesting here is that our sages want to know who is this Keturah. And Isaac, according to the sages, went back to Egypt. Well, he couldn't have gone to Egypt, right? Because he didn't leave Israel. But he obviously reached out to Egypt to bring back Hagar. Keturah is another name for Hagar. And our sages give us different reasons why her name was Keturah now. From one perspective, her name was Keturah because Keturah is the name of the incense that was brought in the holy temple. And our sages say that this woman's behavior and good deeds was as pleasant and as beautiful as the fragrance of the incense in the time of the temple. Another interpretation is the word keturah. In Aramaic, we exchange the Hebrew shin for tet. And therefore, keturah would mean kishura. Kishura would mean knotted, bound, tied up. And it says because even though she left Abraham and she went back to her father's home, who was Pharaoh in, in Egypt, she was the princess of Egypt, she said, you know, she could have married anyone. And she said, once I merited to be with such a holy man, how can I allow myself to be with any other man? And thus she closed herself up, and therefore God gave her the merit to come back and once again be the wife of Abraham. Now, I want to just tell you that over here it goes on and tells us the story of how Abraham passed away and Isaac buries, buries um, um, uh, Abraham. The verse tells us that when they came to the burial, it says Isaac and Yishmael. Now, Yishmael was 13 years older than Isaac, but the mere fact that he allowed Isaac, knowing that God said that he, Isaac, is to be the continuation, the lineage of Abraham, so the fact that in verse 9 it says Isaac before Yishmael, from here we learn out that Yishmael actually repented and returned from his evil ways and went back to accepting the ways of goodness and righteousness, respect and honor of Abraham. Now, here's an interesting story. The verse just says that because God told Abraham that, he is God, that his inheritance is Isaac, so therefore in verse five, it says that before he died, Abraham took everything he had and gave it to Isaac. And then, to these other children, it says he gave them gifts and he sent them east. Now, our sages say, what gift did he give them? And it actually says that he gave them an intellectual gift. The words they use is a name of impurity, which is kind of an interesting concept. A name means that it's connected to spirituality, but we're calling it impurity. Now, what I'm going to tell you right now, I take zero responsibility. 
I did not do the research. I only saw an article written by someone suggesting this. And because I liked it, I'm gonna share it with you. But I cannot vouch for its validity. So God gave Abraham, Abraham gave them an impure name. Now, what would it mean, an impure name? So obviously he gave them some spiritual knowledge, but yet it isn't considered holy. The second thing the verse tells us is he sent them east. Now, this article was suggesting that the Asians in the far east are the offspring of these children of Abraham and the gift that he gave them, the intellectual, spiritual knowledge he gave them was all about the spiritual healing of the energy, the chakras and all of that. Now, why would that be called impure? Now to understand why that would be called impure, I'm gonna take you to another story. There is a teaching that Adam wrote a book of healing, the healing powers of each and every herb. And the Talmud tells us that Chizkiah, the king, he hid it. And the sages praised him for hiding it. Now the question is why? Why would we praise someone for hiding a book of healing which could save so many lives? So the sages explain because when we view anything that happens to us as a communication between God and us and us and God. So if there would be any health issue, the Maimonides tells us that that is God telling us, search deeper into your ways and make sure they're pure, honest, and correct and selfless. But if we have this magic book, and you get sick. Oh, let's just look it up. Oh, this herb, done, healed. So then we're denying a very intimate communication between God and us in which God is showing us that our flow of health and energy is part and parcel of our spirituality and not just some herb concussion. From that perspective, I want to share with you from the little, and I'm not suggesting that I did any real research, but from the little research I've done to this type of healing process, they don't even talk about a higher power. They talk about a universal energy, an energy of the universe. And, and therefore, I would suggest that from the perspective of spirituality being God, rather than just some energy of nature, I'm gonna suggest that's why the sages are referring to this healing process and, and all this wisdom as the impure name. It is in line with spirituality, but it doesn't, it doesn't have us consciously accept that everything is a communication and a relationship between God and us, us and God. Okay, with that being said, we finish the Torah portion. And now I want to talk to you about one concept in conclusion of it all. And I'll be brief. I mentioned to you that Eliezer was given direct, direct instructions from Abraham. Abraham didn't tell him to find a kind wife, a pretty wife. All he said was, find me someone from the family and find me someone that will be willing to come here and live in Israel. Now, needless to say, needless to say, that Abraham was expecting Eliezer to do research into who this person is and to make sure that, you know, Isaac ends up with a, a, a kind and beautiful woman, you know, beautiful also spiritually and also physically, you know. Let's not think that, that physical beauty is not important. Uh, but the, the, the question of what physical beauty is is a little different than what the magazines in Hollywood would like us to believe. But that's the story. Abraham obviously trusted Eliezer. But why would Eliezer first start with a sign? And the sign would be about kindness. He should first find out how many eligible extended family members there are. And then amongst them to ask God for a sign. 
not to show up in the center of the city, not even knowing who's who and who's related to who, and say, this is the girl I will choose. He took upon himself an oath. Why would he do it that way? So what I'm going to suggest to you here is, and, you know, it's no secret that every time I talk about matchmaking and marriage, I, I, I do want to have a disclaimer that, you know, as my life and journey took it, um, I, my marriage didn't succeed. I'm divorced. So I'm just going to share with you, putting myself completely aside, what the teachings say. And please take it for where it comes from and not for he who, from he who is saying it. You know, when I worked in yeshiva, and even after that, and even up to recently, you know, people will call me up, you know, it's that time, yeshiva boys will call me up and tell me, you know, that I'm, enga I'm engaging now with, with the matchmaking process. I don't know what to look for. I don't know, you know, what, what is important. You know, they just ask me just because of experience. And, you know, I'm older than them and I have more white hairs than them. They're asking me for, you know, some type of guidance. And I'll always tell them the same thing. You're telling me you don't know who you're looking for, but do you know who you are? How do you know who to look for if you don't know who you are? There isn't one mold of goodness. There isn't one mold of the right woman. It depends who you are. You need to know who you are and what your journey in life is, and then you'll know what you're looking for. If you don't know who you are, then why are you asking me for guidance in who you should be looking for? And from here, I'm going to quote from the story of Alice in Wonderland. When Alice asked the rabbit, excuse me, I believe it's the rabbit, for directions, which way to go, the rabbit asked her, well, where are you heading? And she said, I don't know. And the rabbit answers, then either path you're taking is okay. If you don't know where you're going, then any road is okay. And I think that's the importance of this lesson. The importance of this lesson is that, Isaac, that Eliezer knew the groom. He knew who he was representing. And thus he knew what he should be looking for. And therefore, yeah, parenthetically speaking, Parenthetically speaking, I was sitting in my sukkah many years ago and sitting by the table amongst the guests was a plastic surgeon. And I asked this plastic surgeon, just in conversation, have you plastic surgeons decided what the perfect female face is? And he says, actually, yes. And I laughed. He says, no, really? with the, 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 the symmetrics, blah, blah, blah. I said, how can you tell me what the perfect beautiful face of a woman is when the perfect beauty of a woman's face is when you find her features and bring that out? For one woman, it's going to be her cheekbone. For one woman, it'll be her eyes. For one woman, it'll, I mean, what, what are you telling me that there is the definition of a beautiful female face? And that is ridiculous, my opinion. Thus, let's carry this now into spiritual beauty. The beauty of this woman is that she's easygoing. The beauty of this woman is that she's very focused. The beauty of this woman is that she has an impeccable integrity. The, way the, the, the beauty of this woman is that she has compassion for everyone. No, which one is beautiful? The question is not which one is beautiful. The question is which one matches your beauty. And the same thing, of course, vice versa. So you don't want a woman or, or the women in this room don't want a man who people are going to tell you that he is amazing. Find out in what he is amazing and find out if that matches in what you're amazing at and find out if that matches to what you want your home and your family and your life's journey to be. 
And thus, first and foremost, the first process of matchmaking is not to know who you're looking for, but to know who's looking. I have, God bless them, six children. And one that would be an appropriate spouse for one would be a horror of an inappropriate wife for the second. And I think that's what we're being taught here. And in conclusion to that, let's talk about it on the mystical level. And this is important to hear. So we spoke about marriage refers to God and us. So how would this conversation play out there? I will tell you how this conversation plays out. So you find out that your friend really started a whole new resolution. She's going to visit hospitals and bring smiles and hope to the sick. And you say to yourself, wow, that is a true Torah ideal. I'm going to do that too. I would say, uh-uh-uh. Don't do what she's doing because that matches her. You may be the type of person that the price you're going to pay in spending three hours amongst those who are not well may be too much for you. Maybe you can't handle dealing with that type of kindness. Maybe the kindness that you should be dealing with is completely different. So when we see what other people do, we need to admire it and respect it without saying, oh, I have to do that too. What you do have to say when you see someone doing something is that I have to do something too. But I don't have to do what that person's doing because that person is following their talents, their gifts, their expression of service to God. Each and every one of us have to find our own path of service. Where should we be focusing more? And that's how this conversation carries out into our very intimate marriage between me, the individual, you, the individual, and God. And with this, I will conclude and will open up the lines.